three. Good! You can't be serious with that shot. Thomas, shake, crossover, step back. What's happening, everybody? Welcome into the Just College Hoops Show. I'm Brian McLaughlin here with Tim Leonard. Tim, we're through the Elite Eight. We have a Final Four. There are no one seeds. There are no two seeds. There are no three seeds. It's a weird <laughs> Final Four. There's no way to put it, but what a weekend we've had here, and we're excited to recap the entire Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. Tim, just what stood out from, from this weekend to you as we now have a Final Four and um, there's so much to break down in a weird weekend of basketball, but an exhilarating one. Yeah. Holy cow. I mean, is this the weirdest final four ever? I, I think we can go on record and say that, right? There's a couple that come to mind and I was going back and looking the 2006 one was considered at the time, like the craziest thing ever. And that was the George Mason year. So shout out to Jim Laranega, who we yeah. just finished watching this Miami game. He's taken Miami and George Mason of all schools to two Final Fours. I think that's a Hall of Fame resume if you're just doing that. Those are not two big-time basketball schools, especially George Mason. I think George Mason hasn't even been back to the tournament since Larinaga left, which was in 2011, I believe, is when he took the Miami job. So props to him. But that 2006 Final Four run was, or Final Four was just a number two seed, a number four, a number three, and a number 11 seed. The other one I think that is up there is the 2011 Final Four, where it ended up being Butler and UConn in the final. Butler was an eight seed, VCU an 11, Kentucky yeah. a four, and UConn was a three, and UConn, of course, is in this one too. UConn is the only team that makes sense, right? They're the only team that has actually been to a Final Four out of the four schools, and Hell, Florida Atlantic hasn't even won a tournament game until this year. So that kind of is selling it short by saying first ever Final Four for Florida Atlantic. You've got a Conference USA team. You've got a Mountain West team. You've got an ACC team. And you've got a Big East team. The Big 12 is dead. We knew the Big 10 stunk. Uh, and Tim was right about the ACC all along. How about that? Let me just do a victory parade. Miami over Texas. It, that proves it, right? ACC better all along than the Big 12. I mean, who said it first? I, no, it wasn't obviously as good of a conference as the Big 12. But I, I did take some, uh, selfishly, I took some pride in seeing the Hurricanes, you know, hold down the fort for the ACC. Just bizarre, though, that on the left side of the bracket, it's Mountain West against Conference USA. And the fact that one of those teams is going to be 40 minutes away from a national title, I can't even wrap my head around it. And it's it's weird to say because I look at those two teams and they're just two really good teams. Like yeah. San Diego State defends with a certain level of intensity, unlike maybe any anyone else in the tournament. That's why they're there. And FAU just has this belief, the Beach Boys, Conference USA powerhouse. And look, they've got 30-plus wins. This is a team that's just won a lot of games this season. And when you get on one of these runs, I think, and this year proves it as much as anything, if you're a team that wins a lot and has a lot of regular season wins, and then you start getting some tournament success, it can snowball quickly. And I think that's what happened with FAU, a confident bunch who believe in their head coach. And 
they had a favorable path in some ways, but at the same time, like in the sense that they didn't have to take down the one seed, they got the 16 fairly Dickinson in round two, but still they beat some big boys. And um, to me, it was hard to watch FAU and Kansas state, which was an awesome game. But I, I came into that game thinking, oh, I can't wait to ride with the mid-major team. Can't wait to ride with FAU. But then Marquise Noel just wins my heart over again. I'm pulling mm-hmm. for the five foot eight kid. And I had no clue what to root for down the stretch of that game, which was one of my favorite games of the weekend that happened yesterday. And um, so the, it was just really a fun weekend of basketball where I had no clue what to expect by the end of it. And props to the teams that are in the final four. I imagine UConn is going to be a pretty heavy betting favorite going into this, or at least the pretty heavy title favorite. But uh, it's going to be really fascinating. There's no doubt about that, because I think there's a realistic case for about any of the four teams left. Yeah, and Florida Atlantic, I was thinking about it. It's very odd because they're not quite a Cinderella. Like, it doesn't feel right to call them a Cinderella when you consider that they are 17th in Ken Palm. They've been right up there all year. They're 35 and three. So, I mean, it just doesn't feel like they could be a Cinderella because they would have made the tournament even if they did not win their Conference USA tournament, right? Like, they would have been an at-large bid. And they were probably underseeded as a nine seed. But at the same time, even though we knew they were good, I don't think anyone had them going this far in the tournament. Everyone was considering Memphis over Purdue as a potential upset. And people were kind of on Purdue losing early, but no one really had Florida Atlantic. So they're not like a total Cinderella. And then I think San Diego State is kind of the same way because they're proving people wrong. They weren't picked. So in that sense, they're a Cinderella to still be dancing, but they're just a really good team that is supposed to be in the tournament was an at-large caliber type of team. So it's kind of a, a weird line that they're living in kind of a gray area where you're not really pulling for them because they're the favorite, but you're not really pulling for them because they're the underdog as well. I mean, San Diego State was definitely the underdog against Alabama, but every other game they were supposed to win or be right there. I think this tournament has kind of underlined the point we've seen all year. There's no elite team. There haven't been any elite teams this season, but there have been a really big number of really good teams. And the the margins have been so thin. We've seen close calls decide games from officials, including a dramatic late foul call today and a game that eventually decides it. We've seen... Including, by the way, the Florida Atlantic-Memphis game in the first round. The jump ball (laughs) in the first round. Yeah, if that timeout is called, they probably don't win that game and they're probably one and done, which is crazy. It really has been fun to see that play out. And I think, like, we talked about it. Nobody was really sure how that would manufacture itself in the tournament. We knew that there wasn't an elite team, but we still, I think, felt like Alabama, Houston, Kansas were maybe an eyebrow above the rest of the group. It turns out that was not the case and that it really was just probably about 20 to 25 teams that had a legitimate shot to make a deep run. There were that many teams in this tournament that if they got a bounce or two here or there, Um, Maybe an injury goes their way. It's one of those years where you can say that probably every season, but it feels more realistic this year to go down the list of if Memphis gets that break against FAU round one, maybe they truly are that team in this thing right now. It's been razor thin in every single matchup. 
Yeah, and I think we touched on that in sort of a joking manner when we were going into the tournament saying it's wide open and how that's become sort of a joke in college basketball because it feels like we've been trending this way in the regular seasons for maybe three or four years in a row. I guess the exception there is that Gonzaga-Baylor year. They were very clearly, I believe that was 2021, they were very clearly above uh, those two teams, and that's kind of how it played out. But this is the first year that I can remember where it's really panned out that way in the tournament. I remember last year, UNC did go on a run, and of course they were leading at halftime as, I believe they were a nine seed or an eight seed, one of the two, in the national championship game last year. They were leading Kansas at halftime. But that was still all Blue Bloods in the in the Final Four. It was Jay Wright in Villanova, Bill Self in Kansas, Coach K in Duke, and Hubert Davis in his first year at UNC. So it still made sense when you looked up at the end of it and saw those four schools. This is totally different because this is, I think, the transfer portal era finally being introduced in the tournament in a big way. And all the stuff that we've been talking about is coming to a head where all these teams, like you've been on this, Brian, that it's just the the talent gap is not what it used to be. And Vermont can pull off a first round win more likely right. now because of that. And Fairleigh Dickinson and all those teams. So that's where all that kind of running narrative is now finally making its way into the tournament, if that makes sense. I feel like for the past couple of years, it's been a thing in the regular season and the tournament has still been kind of wonky per usual, but not like this. And I think we've seen it because the teams that have made the quote unquote Cinderella runs this year haven't just done it on outstanding shot making. They've just battled and it's been Miami coming from behind. FAU's had big comebacks. San Diego state has been all about their defense. Um, and then there's UConn is UConn just the outlier of this group. Are they just, is it simply that they are the best team this year and that they just went through a midseason lull because that that might be the easy take to have that UConn is just going to continue to roll their way through the final four. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to pick them at this point, right? Because they are just dominating really good teams in this tournament and really good coaches. I mean, you went over Iona 87 to 63. That's a win over Rick Pitino, St. Mary's 70 to 55. Great St. Mary's program that really they were about as close as anyone looking back on their first four games in the tournament for UConn. Arkansas was an 88-65 win. And then Gonzaga, I was all excited for that game. And I felt like Gonzaga was starting to form the team of destiny. And we we didn't get a chance to talk about the games on Thursday night, which I think that's honestly when the tournament peaked at this point. And I don't know how it can really get better than what was on display that (laughs) night. Because two of the better tournament games I've ever seen, two of the better tournament performances I've ever seen in Drew Timmy and Marquise Noel that might still be the defining thing we look back on in this tournament, especially if UConn just kind of coasts from here. I think that'll be the highlight of the tournament, but it's it's really hard to pick against UConn at this point. They're beating really good teams really badly. UConn are kind of totally blowing up the, the whole talent disparity gap being shrink in theory if they do just keep rolling um to touch on like like you said we didn't get to break down those thursday night performances marquise noel tim is one of my favorite tournament players in recent memory watched him during the regular season and liked his game but i was not awed in the way that i've been awed in this tournament and frankly it's been a long time since i've seen an individual player and performance stand out like his this season 
almost above any team performance. Right now, he is my memory from this tournament that stands out. He is the one shining moment, really. That That is overall what I'm remembering right now. No, we've still got the final four ahead. And unfortunately for us, he's not in it. We're not going to get the no-look feeds, the 30-foot step-back triples over 6'11 defenders, him cocking his arm at the bench, and him talking trash to Isaiah Thomas. All of it in Madison Square Garden with his brother mic'd up cheering him on. That was just a, an electric factory from Noel to start. And Drew Timmy proved himself a legend. And I think that he deserves to, to be thought of in that way amongst the Gonzaga greats and um, amongst the tournament greats because he led that team to Sweet 16 after Sweet 16 and um, is going to have a storied career that unfortunately – I think a bit predictably two came up a bit short this year. I think that was always yeah. going to be the end of the road for the Zags, but major credit, like you said, goes to those two guys in particular for their sweet 16 performances and overall tournament performances. It was great to have some individual breakout stars like that. Yeah. The Noel performance staying on that for a second to go 20 points, 19 assists in Madison square garden, where there was so much hype. I mean, I don't know how he's not just like, incredibly nervous that he can't even dribble because it is msg and it is a sweet 16 game after he you know grew up in right around the area there in harlem and has to go to kansas state and has talked about it just made storybook doesn't even really put into perspective the the game he had there and he did on a sprained ankle too which i don't know how he he played through that and it didn't bother him as much as it did and then drew timmy i was starting to think if they beat uconn I was going to get on here and make a case that he should be national player of the year over Zach Eady, which is definitely recency bias because <laughs> of what happened in the tournament. But I was starting to think maybe we just overlooked this guy all year. And because he has been considered that type of player for a while, we did not consider him the national player of the year as much as we should have. Regardless, I don't think he's going to win it. And I, I still think Edie probably should win it the more I thought about it. But he was making it sort of an interesting case. I don't know if it ever would have actually been flipped, but just an incredible career for him. And a guy that I think is sort of an outlier in a sense because Gonzaga was still able to go very far in the tournament while relying on the big. And we touched on that last week how some of these other teams that are big reliant haven't had the tournament runs. Oscar Shibway, Zach Eady this year, that type of stuff. But I do think Timmy and Gonzaga, it, it, somehow the narrative is still going to be that they haven't won a national title, but that's eight straight Sweet 16s for them. And it just becomes more and more impressive each year how consistently good they are. Obviously, UConn is is more than just one player, but Adama Sonogo has then probably been the, the most outstanding player of the tournament now that Noel yeah. and Timmy are eliminated. Because you look at the other three teams, while there are outstanding players on FAU, San Diego State, and Miami, three more balanced rosters. And not that UConn isn't a balanced team, but the dominance of Sonogo has really stood out amongst the overall dominance of UConn. But then that brings us to a to a really interesting matchup in UConn and Miami because you and I have talked a lot about Miami, Tim. Their their guards are really impressive, right? But the performances they they got today from Jordan Miller and I believe it's Omie, uh, the, their two forwards. Okay. Just, yeah. It, yeah, they were just really strong performances from the bigs. Which if those two can play like that, you're giving yourself and your guards a real fighting chance against Sonogo and the size of the Huskies. 
Yeah, I was really impressed with how they handled Houston. And of course, Texas is no slouch as well. I mean, they just took down two top five Ken Palm teams back to back. Now they're going to play the number one team on Ken Palm currently in UConn, which goes into the point of how it feels like UConn is just going to win this thing at this point, but we'll see. I mean, nothing has really gone according to script to this point, so it feels kind of silly to just take the obvious winner. But Jordan Miller did not miss a single shot in this game. It was talked about a lot on the broadcast. That's the first time since Christian Leitner did that in the tournament. He was 7 for 7 from the floor, all two-pointers, and 13 for 13 at the free throw line, scored 27 points. Miami's... They're, they are sneaky deep. You, you were talking about it. Like Isaiah Wong had just two points in the first half. He's the ACC player of the year. They were still fine. Nigel Pack, who, by the way, it was kind of funny thinking that he left Kansas State yeah. as the hyped up transfer, right? And he got the huge NIL deal, which Miami is definitely a product of the transfer portal. Three starters from the transfer portal. That's kind of how they were the year before as well when they went to the Elite Eight. So, that's this new era really making its way into the tournament again. But cool that Nigel Pack left Kansas State and Kansas State got better and Miami got better using him as well. That just sort of was funny to think about when you saw two of the bigger teams in the tournament were, you know, associated with Nigel Pack last year and then this year. But I, I would say Miami gives UConn a game would be my guess right now because they played two really good teams and they just play so hard and they're physical and they're tough to defend. The yeah. one thing that is an outlier with Miami is they're now, I think, statistically the worst defensive team ever by a long shot to make the final four, according to Ken Palm, since Ken Palm has been tracking, you know, all the data, which I think started in like 2000 or somewhere around there. So, you know, their defense is 104 on Ken Palm and it started the tournament at 132 on Ken Palm. So that is a huge outlier to make it this far. But man, those boys put the ball in the hoop, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Like their defense isn't great, but they they did it without a three in the second half today. They were lights out inside the arc, attacking the rim with real fearlessness. And that's with a couple of guards and Pack and Wong who really do like to shoot the three. Now, obviously, Wong is an excellent finisher inside as well, and Pack is solid inside the arc, but they now have scored 80 points in three consecutive games and 80 points back-to-back -back against Houston and Texas. Are you kidding me? That's that's yeah. big-time offensive performances. They are getting it done in a variety of ways on that end. I'm going to have a tough time. I, I'm going to see that line, and I'm going to like Miami probably. Whatever that line opens at, whatever they are on the money line, my gut is just going to tell me to lean Miami uh, based on the value play there. And I'm not really sure – if they can handle Sonogo, frankly, and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to totally keep up on the glass, but I think that I, I think they can handle him. Like, I mean, they've handled two physical teams with bigs. Uh, I said they can handle him today for Texas, though. The starting center for Texas was out injured, which yeah, helps that's Miami's true. bigs a bit. Dasu, Good point. Dasu was a monster against Penn State. Texas not having him made them pretty shorthanded. Yeah, that, that is a good point. I, I guess what I'm saying is I think Ohm. Ochai is, is definitely underrated as a big, and he's physical enough to give another big problems. I No, I don't think – I think Sonoga's going to have a good game. It's just I think they can probably handle him as much as an average team can handle Sonogo. So it's still going to be a problem for them. But And they are a guard-driven team. 
So that'll be interesting. I'm looking now. Ken Palm has UConn as seven point favorites. So usually wow. the, the Ken Palm spread and the actual spread yeah. aren't that far off. Wouldn't shock me if UConn's like minus seven or eight here. And they're probably going to get a lot of money because they've covered every spread so far. That's that's a lot of points. That's it a is. lot of points. And yeah. does it worry you at all with UConn that they haven't been in a tight game down the stretch? Does that give you any reservations about if Miami keeps this thing close, that they have now pulled out some close games against really good teams and UConn, it's been a minute since they've had to feel their heartbeat in the under four timeout. Yeah. I mean, I guess it does a little bit, but at the same time, there have been teams that have done this. I think of that Tyler Hansborough UNC team. They won every single game of the tournament, all six games by double figures. So UConn is trending to be a team like that. And actually they've won every game by 15 or more points to this point. So I don't know if that, I don't think that's going to continue. And it's weird because if they're seven point favorites against Miami, I mean, are they going to be more favored against, you know, and that's still the Ken Palm spread. We don't know the actual line yet. I don't know if that's out, but they might be more favored against San Diego state or FAU, because I think the way Miami has actually taken down some top tier teams more so than San Diego State or FAU, they might be getting a little bit more respect. But I guess the Ken Palm ranking is, you know, is what I'm basing this off of. And Miami is the lowest rated team on Ken Palm left of the four. Yeah, I would I would imagine depends on how if, if UConn were to blow out Miami, then I would imagine the number would be pretty yeah. big against an FAU or a San Diego State. But watching San Diego State battle with Creighton today and, and how – I think it's fair to say Creighton probably the more talented team, but how they were able to just maintain Kalkbrenner and honestly still get after the offensive glass made me really excited for San Diego State. It's funny. Somebody tweeted this, and I wish I could give credit to whoever it was. San Diego State either makes their jump shots or they have the worst misses I've ever seen. <laughs> like they're spraying that thing when they miss, yeah. which leads to bodies all over the place, which leads to offensive rebounds. And then it leads to a lot of second chances for them. And they just are able to grind out the game. They muck it up defensively. They play really hard, really physically. San Diego State is a fascinating matchup to to just about anybody. I'm really obviously curious to see them against FAU. But I was was unsure of how they'd handle Creighton's size and talent today. And and they dictated the the terms of that game. Yeah. What would you think of the final call at the end of that game? Yeah, I thought it was a foul. Um, I, I okay. I did think it was a soft-ish one to award in that moment, which I know is kind of hard to really decide. But I think by the letter of the law, it was enough of a he. He had that hand on the waist, right? Just yeah. enough of the the hand on the waist, and like Jim Spinarkle said, that's enough to throw you off balance. He was totally clean up top. I did think it was a foul. In that moment of the game, it's really tough to swallow if you're a Creighton supporter. But I did think if you had that play happen in a vacuum, I did think it was a foul. Yeah, it's. I think you're right if it was eight minutes left in the game or something. And maybe it's wrong of me to come up here with the stance that you should change how you officiate a game down the stretch. It's That's a dangerous precedent to set. It, just, it was tough because I feel like it rewarded – San Diego State for not doing a whole lot on that yeah. play. And and that's that's on Creighton and the Creighton player. I believe it was Nebhard who had his yeah, hand on Nebhard. the face there. Yeah. yeah. 
it, he probably was a little too touchy there, but the floater was going to be short regardless. I don't think he altered the shot, which is disappointing. Then I thought that the second free throw was going to be missed and we we're going to go to overtime anyway. Once the first free throw was missed, I was like, oh man, this is going to be tough to watch. This kid missed back to back at the line. So in a way, I was kind of rooting for the second one to go down, but it, it feels like if that game went to overtime, it's probably a Creighton win. I don't know. It, it was tough to see it end like that, but. It was tough to see it end like that and end like that for a Creighton team that um, had really sky high preseason expectations, went through some real midseason hardships. And um, again, though, product in a lot of ways of the transfer portal. Bay- Baylor Shireman was one of the biggest gets in the offseason. I know Ryan Kalkbrenner has been around for a while, but you have guys that have come in on that team from the portal um, that made big impacts, which I think is a credit to Greg McDermott and a credit to that staff um, for being able to go out and make their team better in the off season. And for Creighton, I think that I'm curious what your thoughts are on their season as a whole, which I don't know if we have total time for this, Tim, but overall it was a fascinating season for them to go from preseason, such heavy favorites to then, get so doubted by the middle of the year. But then by the end of the year, I think they were one of the top teams even coming into this tournament as a six seed. Yeah. And it was all that Kalkbrenner in, or injury, I guess is not the right sickness. word. It was mono sickness. Yeah. yeah. When he was out, they were a totally different team right. and that messed with their resume. So I was happy to see them get back to hole and, and start playing pretty solidly down the stretch. I think it's a successful year for them and their program. They had never been, or no, we talked about this. They had been to one final four and right. it was forever ago. And we were sort of, yeah, yeah. Something like that. So it's still a great year for Greg McDermott and Creighton overall. And it shows that the big East definitely had a very top, you know, four or five really good yeah. teams at the top of the conference, maybe the best top four or five of any conference. I think you could make that argument at this point. Absolutely. The big East is up there. A couple notes here on just how wonky the overall collection of these final four teams are. I'm looking at the AP preseason top 25 pool oh because you, you got me thinking because Creighton was right up there. Obviously, they didn't make it. The only team that was ranked was San Diego State. I was wondering if no one was ranked, and it actually is just San Diego State. They were ranked 19th. UConn and Miami were receiving votes in the AP preseason top 25 FAU, of course, was nowhere near. They were actually 89th on Ken Palm at the start of the season. No one was focused on them. And then they went and won on the road at Florida, and you started getting into some discussion about that. But that's crazy. The other thing that I am just looking at this now, and it's coming through kind of my group chat that is in in the bracket pool that we do every year. There's, I think, 27 entries in my bracket pool, and not a single entry in the bracket pool picked a final four team right the bracket pool is over there's there's nothing more to be decided in my bracket pool 27 and we can just start paying out now i don't think that has ever even come close to happening since i've been in a bracket pool for march madness i'm i'm checking my bracket pool now i my my final four teams have long been eliminated yeah um that's fascinating I, I would imagine that that's similar. UConn to, will to be Madden. the only one, and I'm sure you know UConn was picked yeah. to win by a decent amount, but they still were a four seed. So I was surprised that no one had UConn out of the 27 entries in my final four. 
But I would also have been equally as shocked if anyone had any of the other three schools in their final four. That would have been quite the call. So, yeah, I've, I've not seen a – the bracket pool is done. Like, we, we can just hand out the money now, and that is staggering to think about that it's already happened that way. For what it's worth, Tim, my bracket has officially finished in last place in my bracket pool, 24 you out of 24, were, despite, despite like, starting 26 right. and 32. I had the uh, hottest first two days of my life and haven't gotten a pick right since. It's been the wildest swing of events of my sports fandom, I think. Yeah. Man, they should. Did you get money for the first round or something? I think no. a good bracket pool pays out based on how you do in the first round because there is some skill to that. And then from there, it can get wonky and get too dependent on just did you pick the national champion, which I was I was first no round leader, 99th percentile and the ESPN bracketology. So I was I was feeling good. My pride yeah. got a boost for for a day. And then I got back here, recorded a pod with you Friday night of the first round and woke up and. I don't think I've gotten a game right since then. So if I'm saying that UConn's the the likely favorite to win it all, they're probably losing to Miami. Yeah, you went, if you're a golfer, you went like 59-80 and missed the cut after leading That's by That's the like, only way to go, yeah. though. I'm, I'm glad I went down crashing <laughs> yeah. and burning. I flew too close to the sun for sure. Right. Yeah, well, it, it has been crazy. I do want to just highlight Florida Atlantic a little yes. bit more because I feel like we're going to obviously preview these matchups later in the week, and we'll dive into the specifics on everything. But Florida Atlantic, and this has been talked about a good bit, that is not a good job even in just Conference USA. And I think Jeff Goodman has done a good job detailing this about how he went there, checked out the facilities this year, and – their facilities just really stink, honestly, is according to Goodman. I haven't been there, obviously, and seen the campus, but it's in Boca Raton, Florida. I guess that is a selling point for recruits. But again, they did not win. Yeah, yeah, they didn't win a single tournament game coming into this year. There's no resources, no facilities. Their home arena doesn't get much of a draw. They're just not a talking point in that town. And they're going to be in the final four after making just two NCAA tournament appearances ever. So to me, I think Dusty May has to be right up there as a national coach of the year candidate. And I don't want to just totally weigh what you do in the tournament for that. I think that's no, foolish, but, but we're not doing it with him because no. they won 35 games and he's taken them from 89 on Ken Palm to start the year to this. I would still say that Shaka Smart has a case, even though they were, knocked out early to a good Michigan State team, I'll add. I would say that Jerome Tang is up there, but yeah. if any of those three win it, I'm happy with it because I do think what he has done at Florida Atlantic cannot be talked about enough. Yeah, my vote would probably go to Shaka Smart um, and the job he did at Marquette in just year two, but Dusty May, just his fifth year at Florida Atlantic, and just a really cool story. He was a student manager. It was not a, a college basketball player. He was just one of those guys who wanted to work in sports, showed up a, as a student in school, and was a student manager, grinding his way through the coaching ranks, and is now a head coach at Florida Atlantic, which is just such a cool story for perseverance and what hard work can do, even in the coaching ranks. And like you said, the year that they've had is beyond just the tournament, a non-conference win at Florida. And then in-conference play, they had a really good year in the Conference USA. North Texas and UAB, two really solid teams that had they won the Conference USA tournament, likely are real Cinderella candidates as well. Yeah. 
everybody knows about Jelly Walker at, at UAB in North Texas with Tyler Perry, another star guard. And so an FAU team that even in the talent disparity gap that is relatively shrinked, they're still not, they're probably the least talented team left, which is not saying they are untalented. It's just that they are a group that fits well together and play hard together, which you prove can be dangerous and they've got good depth and it's not just your starting five. And you do have different guys who can all score the ball and they can win in a variety of ways, Tim. I love the, yeah. the stat on Ken Palm, number of possessions in the game. Their first game in the tournament against Memphis, super slow, 60 possessions. Game two against Fairleigh Dickinson, really fast, 73 possessions. 58 possessions against Tennessee, and then back to 73 wow. possessions against Kansas State. They can win slow, they can win fast, they can score, they can defend, and they believe in each other. That's a really dangerous combination of tools going into a Final Four. Yeah, and I think the casual observer would say, oh, they must just be one of these mid-major groups that has been together for a while and they know how to play together and they have veteran guys. That's not necessarily the case. I mean, they're 148th on Ken Palm in D1 experience, that stat that ranks every team in the country. So, you know, they have John L. Davis is a sophomore, Elijah Martin's a sophomore. Those are kind of some of their go-to guys. So this group could all come back and and continue to be a factor going forward here that which is interesting to think about but I don't know I, I guess my final question as we sort of wrap up here is it, to you is is it gone too far with how wonky this tournament has gotten because I think there's two minds of thinking here it's oh my gosh you know rip up my bracket this is just the madness bring it on and I'm usually that guy but at the same time the way it worked out last year, I think, was a really good balance of the madness happened, and then we got to the Final Four, and it was like, we know these guys. They're brand names. We kind of know what they're about. There's built-in storylines. I mean, obviously, Carolina Duke last year was a dream. So right. that yeah. would be my preferred outcome most years. I don't really – I mean, I'm still going to love these games, but I do think the ratings are going to be – low and a lot of the tv ratings have been very good recently and, and i think the first round of this tournament was the best ratings ever so take that for what you want but you know when it's fau against san diego state at 6 30 or whatever on saturday i, I think that's going to be a historically low rating for, for a sure. final four game unfortunately yeah so which to it, yeah is it too much i mean i I do think we're in a weird spot where there's not a ton of brand name coaches and this collection of four coaches all vying for their first national championship is kind of a weird bunch, but I don't know. I mean, I'm still, I still love it. And I think, you know, if you're oh, a yeah. true college basketball diehard, it's still great theater, no matter what happens in the tournament. I think first of all, Jim Laranega has an inside track into the best coach remaining. Nothing against any of the other guys. Yeah. It's four outstanding coaches. One of them is going to win their first national title. I think coach Laranega is the best guy left. We'll see. I think as far as the overall kind of makeup of this final four and this, how this tournament has unfolded, I believe that I like it because it's unexpected. And if we get something that's similar next year, then I will like it less. I like that it's so different from last season. Yeah, I like when things are different year to year. If it's the Blue Bloods who make the Final Four every season, then I'm going to want that switched up. I, I, I appreciate this year that there are no Blue Bloods. Now, if it's this time again next year and Carolina, Indiana, Duke, UCLA, Kentucky all losing the first round or don't make it, 
then it's going to be like, all right, I could use some of the the big names. I could use some of the pageantry yeah. of the big, massive fan bases that are going to absolutely pack Houston. Do I think the crowds will travel from these fan bases? Yes, I do. But it is a little bit different when you're lacking all of the big boys. I think the tournament at its best provides a mix. This year, I do think it, it is very fun and well representative of the season we've had, though, which is why I'm okay with it this year. I just don't want it to become a recurring theme where all of a sudden it really is a toss up from game to game. I do want to see some teams prove that we're just better. Like, I yeah. get that the best team's not going to win it every year, Tim, but I do like when a handful of teams just prove that they are on a different echelon than the rest of the country. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I am a little bit worried that I think this is going to become the new norm as yeah. we continue further into this transfer portal era here and just this weird time with college basketball. I do think that next year is probably going to be closer to this than it was to the year before in terms of the final four makeup. And that might not be great for a uh, average college basketball fan. It's not going to impact me. If anything, I'll, I'll probably be more interested right. next year if we kind of get another crazy bracket like this. So for me personally, I don't really care too much, but it's fascinating. I was listening to Jim Beheim this week, who's this, you know, former Syracuse. Like, I don't have to introduce Jim Beheim. Sort of I think that guy. College, yeah, but I, I'm a Syracuse guy. So that's why I was listening to him on a podcast. And he talked about how he used to make the Sweet 16 like very consistently. And you wouldn't celebrate when you made the Sweet 16. And now you see these teams, they're celebrating like crazy when they make the Sweet 16 because it's just tougher to get that far. There's too much talent in college basketball. And it used to be almost like a myth how much this was his point that there are upsets in the first couple rounds of the tournament. And there is madness because usually it was a one seed winning it all. Now I think we're entering just a totally new era where, no, it's truly March Madness and making the Sweet 16 is almost as wild as making the Final Four or what it used to be. Four-seeded UConn, five-seeded Miami and San Diego State, ninth-seeded FAU. What a Final Four we've got. Tim, we're going to return this week to break all that down and really dive deep into all of those matchups. This was fun. Glad we got to record a wrap-up of this weekend, a wild weekend. Really looking forward to breaking down the Final Four with you. Yeah, we'll go deep into the matchups in this next one, so be on the lookout for that. But it's, it's going to be a weird Final Four from this point on, but it was fun breaking it down to this point. Appreciate you all tuning in. As always, leave a review, leave a rating. We'll talk to you later this week. For Tim Leonard, I'm Brian McLaughlin. This has been another episode of the Just College Hoops Show.